good morning. Feels a lot more homey than I was expecting, so that's good. So, um, yeah, I guess Heath kind of already introduced me, but I was going to start out with a little introduction. I'm Caleb Owsley, um, follower of Christ, first and foremost, but also partner in crime, Rebecca. Um, father of a child yet to come, really excited about that. And during the day, I'm a medical student. So those are what we would call in medical school the pertinent positives. And the pertinent negatives, I don't have a job. I am not originally from Texas, although I got here as soon as I could, you know. And I have never preached a sermon like this before. So (laughs) please bear with me as we dig through this text. I'm really looking forward to it, really am. I didn't know that it was going to be a double header, but I think that works really well, you know, with what we just heard from Caroline and really synthesize that with the promises in our text today. So um, I frame my intro like this, kind of the, you know, what's true about me, what's not true, um, for two reasons. One, like I said, that's kind of this framework in medical school to help arrive at a diagnosis. But also, as we examine the text today, we'll see a similar description of God, both what he is like and what he is not like. And I hope that that really drives us to a better understanding of God's heart and a clearer picture of how we live as sinners who are saved by his grace. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this space and this time to come before you, to have our hearts open, to hear from your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and work in our hearts to transform us into followers of you that are not just believers by word, but also in action. I thank you for the work that you're already doing in and through us, and I pray that you would guide us in how to continue that work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so before I start, I want to set the stage. Maybe you haven't been here in the past few weeks, or maybe you just need a refresher. We're in James, um, and James was written to the early church, mostly Jewish turned Christians at the time. So chapter one of James is kind of an overview of what's going on in the book as a whole. Um, and in general, I would say James' focus is this concept that I like to call faithing, the idea of faith being a verb. So what does it look like to have faith, not just conceptually, but actually having faith, faithing? And it's a call to action. A lot of this book is filled in with commands, etc. Okay. So let's just go ahead and read through the text. Today it's in James 1, verses 12 through 18. I think it will be on the screen. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So before we dive in and go verse by verse, I want to make a few comments on the passage as a whole. 
So like I mentioned, James is kind of very command-focused. Do this. Don't do this. This section is kind of like a, a rare aside where he's taking some time to make some theological points. I think James saw the need that, you know, before he goes off and says, do this, do this, he needs to set the framework for why this is all important, the right theology before we dive into how to live it out. So his main points, our sinful desire is a source of temptations. God is a good father who gives good gifts, including salvation, and you can trust him. And from a position of grace, we walk in the work or trials that God gives us. So we're actually going to start going through all that in verse 13, because I think verse 12 makes more sense once we've kind of come full circle and hit it again from the, from the, from the beginning. Um, so verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is, why is James writing this? What's the point of this, you know, this objection that he's bringing up? Let no one say, I am being tempted by God. It's this idea of passing the buck. It's the idea that if God is sovereign, then he must be in control. So if I sin, it's on him. This fallacy goes way back to the beginning of time, way back to the Garden of Eden. The very first sin. What did Adam say? The woman you gave me. <laughs> trying to pass the buck. In the same way, James is combating this, saying, when you are tempted to sin, it's not God's doing. It's from within. Now, to understand this fully, we need to unpack the nature of temptation. So, I want this to be kind of a little more active session, so I'm going to ask for hands. Can someone give me a definition? How would you define temptation? Someone? All right, Josh. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think going back to what Heath said, to go back to in the, in the first few verses, he talked about the difference between trials and temptations, whereas trials are kind of an external circumstance that you go through. Temptation is kind of an internal conflict, something that you're lured to. And also, I would add that trials look bad on the outside, but are ultimately good for us, whereas temptations look good on the outside, but are actually deadly. So to put it another way, Trials are kind of like eating your vegetables. It might not seem good on the outside, but they're ultimately good for you. Whereas temptations are kind of like eating dessert. They look good on the outside, but they're really just going to give you cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So, and another point about temptation is that temptation at its heart is a lie. Temptation is a lie that says that God will not satisfy you as much as blank, whatever that would be. And as a lie, God cannot be part of it, for God cannot lie. It says so in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? It's so important when we're faced with these questions of like, is God tempting me? Whatever. That we have a good grasp of God's character. God is a good father who longs to give good gifts to his children. That's, 
kind of con- you know, contrasted in these verses with the nature of man, as we see in verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted. We're all in the same boat. If that word phrasing wasn't clear, if you just look at Romans 3.23, it clarifies, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we look at that phrase, enticed by his own desire, we notice that the desire is coming from within. Now, a quick clarification, this word desire, it's not saying that if you ever have a desire for something, that's automatically going to lead to sin and going to be evil. It's specifically a sinful, it's not translated in other translations as sinful desire. It's specifically a desire that encourages you to go after something that is not godly. So this idea of evil desires coming from within our heart goes a bit against the grain of popular culture, which says, follow your heart, do what feels right, go after your own moral compass. The Bible is teaching us that human beings are sinful at the core. There's nowhere to pass the buck. And what's the consequence of this? Verse 15 says, when desire has fully grown, sorry, then desire, when has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We are powerless to stop this trajectory of desire leading to sin, leading to death. We need to take sin seriously. Do you? Okay, so that's the rough stuff. <laughs> it's going to get a lot better. Um, we're about to get to the turn. So verse 16, I love this verse. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. I love it first because of the tone that James creates here. Beloved brothers. Throughout college, I was a part of a campus ministry called Chi Alpha, and one of the key things that I learned there and picked up was this idea about love, that love for a brother or sister in Christ doesn't mean that you let them do whatever they want. In fact, quite the opposite, that loving someone says that over my dead body, am I going to let you live a stupid life? And that's kind of what James is seeing here. You know, I love you, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. So don't be deceived about what? Like I said, this is kind of the hinge of the passage. On one side, we have our desire that leads to sin, that leads to death. And on the other side, we have good gifts from God. So don't be deceived. Why do, why do we be, excuse me. Yeah, don't be deceived about which are the temptations in which are God's good gifts. Both look good on the outside, but like I said, one leads to death, and one, through God, we are given new birth. So these paths are so diametrically opposed, how do we get them confused? I think the answer is, like I said, they don't look that different. They both look good on the outside. It can be easy to think that Sinning is always going to be a, a bad thing. I think Timothy Keller puts it really well in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, we think that idols, or in this case it could be said anything that tempts us, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely 
we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. So let me give you an example to help clarify this idea of this dichotomy we have going here and how it can look similar. So I'm going to be a doctor someday, God willing, and potentially have a large earning potential. So I can imagine that it would be really easy to be lured by desire for good things, like having a nice, a safe car, you know, saving up lots of money for retirement, having a big house where we can host guests and practice hospitality, right? That's a good thing. But if my desire in those things is to be satisfied by them, I will be drastically let down. The reason is that man's heart was only meant to be satisfied by God. Don't be deceived. God gives the perfect gifts. Let's look at that passage one more time. In verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what are perfect gifts? We, if you've been at all in living in this world in the past few days, you've probably seen a Valentine's Day ad for like, the perfect gift for your love. And while that's important, definitely important to give good gifts to your partner or spouse, perfect in those gifts is always going to fall short. Perfect here is this word meaning like complete, full, mature, having reached the end goal, echoing the verse 4 in chapter 1, saying that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These gifts lack nothing. They are perfect for us. They are like a key fitting into a lock with exactly what we need. Not what we think we need, but what we need. Let me give you an example of that. Same word perfect shows up in Jesus' interaction with a rich ruler back in Matthew 19, where Jesus tells the man that in order to be perfect, he should go sell all his stuff. Perfect. So again, not exactly what we think we might need, but what exactly God knows we need. In order for that to be a good thing, we need to trust that God gives exactly what we need. And that leads to the next part, the nature of God. God is a good father. Maybe not all of us have had the best relationships with our fathers, so this could be a little confusing, but hopefully we have a concept of a dad, of, of a father figure, who's someone who's stronger than us, more powerful than us, and looking out for us. I'm really looking forward to being a parent and also really scared <laughs> because those of you who are parents are probably like, you know, there's, I mean, it's going to be great, but there's a lot that I have to learn for sure. And I know one thing that's going to be hard is discipline. Over Christmas break, I had a great opportunity to spend time with my brother and my two nieces and kind of get, you know, a little glimpse of that, what that looks like. And, oh my goodness, one morning I woke up and it was like World War III. Let, to set the scene, Amy, who's like, I guess she just turned two, she's about two, she had spilled the Cheerios, which is not a big deal. They can be picked up. But at this point, my brother, Luke, had asked her to pick up three Cheerios, but she didn't want to. No! It was like her favorite word the whole time we were there. Amy did not want to. So what ensued was like a 30, I don't know, Rebecca says it was like an hour standoff 
over who is going to clean up the spilled Cheerios. And there were many, many tears. So could my brother just have picked up the Cheerios? <laughs> of course. Easily. But raising a child who gets everything they want is not a good gift. Hopefully that's obvious. In the same way, God could give us whatever we want, but he lets us go through trials and struggle with our sinful nature because he can use it for our growth, as we've seen in James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and for his glory. God is a perfect father. And one attribute that he you know, goes beyond human fathers is that he has an unchanging nature. He will never change from being that way. Not only does he give good gifts, but he will never change in his promises. Sometimes it may feel like, I know I've had times, many times in my life where it feels like God's changed or not there or not there in the same way, but really that's just an error in our own perception, not the reality based on what this passage lays out. He does not change like the shadows. Malachi 3.6 puts it quite bluntly. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O Israel, or sorry, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's good that, you know, the all-powerful, almighty God says, you know, I will love you and doesn't, yeah, it's good. So, and that leads us to the next part. The biggest, most perfect gift that God has given us which is, of course, salvation. Chance to have new life through his son. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Brought forth is, a sim- is the same birth analogy. Again, same as the whole desire conceiving, giving birth to sin, and sin giving birth to death on this one hand. On the other hand, we have the word of truth bringing us forth to become firstfruits of his creatures. Just to clarify, I think that, you know, we as, in Christian circles, we throw this idea of new life. You know, okay, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be born again? I think Jesus clarifies this really well in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So the act of putting your faith in Jesus is symbolic of a new birth because you're passing from death to life. So quickly touch on this idea of first fruits. What is James talking about? So if you're not familiar, it's first fruits are an Old Testament concept, or really a command that the first portion of your harvest should set aside for God. It's an offering for God. There's more harvest to come. But the first part gets offered to God. In the same way, James' audience, the first century Christians, were the first Christians. They were like the first fruits of this good news of the gospel. The first to be brought into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to pause for a moment. It's like the time in the sermon where, you know, I might be starting to lose focus and stuff. So we're going to like wake up and do a little bit of Q&A again. Hopefully... I mean, in med school, we have, like, these clicker questions you got to, like, click in. So we don't have that here, but um, just audience participation. So what lures us into temptation? Our sin, ourselves, our sinful desire. And what is the result? 
death. Perfect. Now, who is God? Or, like, what aspect of his character do we see here? He's a good father. Beautiful. And because God gives perfect gifts, although we may not recognize them as such, especially in our sinful selves, we should want for nothing. We have no true need to desire after other things in ways that dishonor God. If we need something, we ask. God will never tempt us with things that we need but don't have. He does allow trials. In fact, those should be considered part of his perfect gifts. They do not constitute deprivation of something we truly need. The big theme here is that trusting that God knows what we need better than we do. Choosing to humbly submit to his sovereignty, his kingship, and choosing him to be on the throne of our lives rather than having an attitude that says, I'm going to get mine. This is hard. (laughs) At least for me. I don't know about you guys, but this is hard. We can't do it on our own. In fact, we're not meant to. We need him to work inside of us. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's go ahead and read, come back now to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, when I first read this, there's a little bit of confusion because, you know, all throughout my life, you hear that salvation is by grace. You know, you choose to believe by faith in Jesus and you're saved. And that's kind of what we are reading in the verse from John. But here, it kind of seems to imply that work is required to achieve this new life or salvation, that we must stand the test, some sort of test, in order to receive the crown of life. In order to dig deeper into this, um, I think a great passage is Ephesians, is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, going through verse 10. So I'm going to read that for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sound familiar? It's the same thing going on here, the desires. Lured and enticed. Verse 4. But God. That's got to be the best conjunction in the whole Bible. (laughs) Like, here we are, nothing we can do, we're terrible. But being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Can you see it coming through? Even if you've heard it a hundred times, we need to hear this. We need to hear the gospel over and over again. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. So this process of remaining steadfast under trial to receive the crown of life must mean something that different than that we must work to achieve it. 
I think is so beautiful too. I, I didn't realize this was going to be a double header. I feel like we've already had a sermon and a half today. Um, but it's so cool to see how this gets worked out. Like just the, the verse, you know, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And to see that worked out even in a, you know, in a way on this earth. But how much more that picture of immeasurable riches, God lavishing us on us in heaven. Okay, and then verse 10 of Ephesians kind of puts a cap on it and ties these two ideas of, of grace and works together. And it says, for we are his workmanship. This is coming after, by grace you have been saved through faith. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. There it is. It's this temporal order that's super important. It's not that we work to achieve our salvation. First, back up, we are saved by grace. And in that position, we can walk in the work that God has for us. In the same way that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses these phrases, blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's not that the pure in heart were blessed because they see God or something like that, they're better than us, but rather God chose to give his blessing making his children pure in heart, and consequently they'll see him. Not our work, but his blessing in our lives. In the same way here, in, our, in the verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That man is blessed by the grace of God to remain steadfast under trial. He is saved by faith, and he is able, therefore, to stand the test and thus receive the crown of life. As Heath puts it, the promise comes before personal responsibility. God makes us alive together with Christ, seats us with him in the heavenly places. Then we walk in the works, the good works God has prepared for us. This is the faithing part of it. How to faith. How to live radically different, God-centered lives. In order to do that, we have to have the right order of things. So how do we apply this to our lives? If you're at the point, where you're still at the point where you think, I mean, and I've been here too, where you feel like, you know, it's subtle things, you need to work for your salvation, or like, if I'm not having my quiet time, or doing all these right things, praying enough, maybe God won't love me as much. And it's, it's more subtle than that, but I think you get the idea. If you're still in that point, take some time to go back. Read through Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. On the other side, some of us may be here today saying that we have faith, but not doing anything about it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says we are created for good works. What does that look like? What does living out your faith look like? Well, one, not idly letting sin take over your lives. We see that some in this passage about, you know, falling into desire. And we'll hear more about that next week in verse 21 also looks like embracing trials. They give us an opportunity to give God glory by kicking us off of our comfortable, non-spiritual bums and getting us to trust in God. And then going back to the idea of first fruits, it's not just a harvest, it's an offering. Our lives are meant to be wholly surrendered to God. What's the hard one? What's the hard thing for you to surrender in your lives, to give over to God, to let him have control over? 
Mine's definitely time, my time. I can be a real miser of that. And I know that's something that God will have to continue to work on me to the point where I really let him do whatever he wants with my time. And then, again, with first fruits, it's the first fruits. That means there's more to come. This is a call to action in and of itself. God has made a way that we could be a part of bringing this message of salvation to others. So let's get to work. Now, to illustrate this concept of faith as an action, faith as a verb, I like to use the example of a tightrope walker. And maybe some of you have heard this story before. So there's this tightrope walker. He's in, I don't know, New York City. You know, got his rope between two super tall buildings. He's like walking across, got that pole thing, you know. He's looking really cool. Crowd starts to gather. People are cheering like, whoa, what's he going to do? He does that thing where he like pretends to fall. And everyone's like, oh. But then he's like, oh, he's got it. You know, he's great. He's doing great. So the next thing he does, he gets out this wheelbarrow, starts like walking across. You're like, what's he doing? He's like carrying potatoes across this like building. What's he doing? But everyone's like building anticipation. What's going to happen next? So at this point, he gets across, takes a pause and says, he looks at the audience and is like, all right, who thinks I can carry a man across in this wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, yeah, you're great. Volunteers? Do you see what's going on here? Did the crowd have faith that he could carry a man across? Did they? Can you say that you have faith with no action? Did they really believe that he could do it? Or would, maybe, they, maybe you could say that they did, but they really had something to lose. There was a strong barrier for them to, to have faith in a faithing sort of way. Now to get back to the story, suppose there was this you know, really old dude, or maybe, you know, someone who's terminally ill and, and going to die anyway. He's like, hey, what the heck? I'll go for it, <laughs> you know? And that illustrates another point. In order to put our faith into action, to live uncomfortably, to live by faith, we need to be dead to ourselves. We need to consider ourselves, as, as Paul did in Galatians 2, verse 20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to consider ourselves dead and only living for God. That is the only way to get in that wheelbarrow. So bringing this whole passage together, we... Believers were dead in our trespasses and slaves to our evil desire. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, sin no longer has power over us. We have new life. We can choose not to sin and not to give in to our evil desire, but rather submit ourselves to God to do his work and to remain steadfast in the trials he allows to come into our lives. It is because of Christ's work that we can work. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for your sacrifice on the cross that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, that we might have new life, that we might be able to choose you and to be able to walk in this new life that you've given. I'm so thankful for that. 
I pray that we, each of us would see that day in and day out and that our lives would look different because of it, that we would not be working thinking that we need to gain our salvation, but that we would be trusting in you for that and we would be walking in the good works you've prepared for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.